Yo, what's up? What's good? What's good? Ah, how are you feeling, man? I'm out here, uh, new state, new place, uh, West Coast Cali. What's it like out there on the West Coast? West Coast? I mean, I'm so bad. I didn't even realize that the West Coast got cold or got so hot. I, I, I totally believed in all the hype that it was 72 and sunny, which was, by the way, the Wi-Fi code at the Airbnb I stayed at the first day I got here. That's hilarious. But, uh... <laughs> Climate change, yeah. player. Climate change even messing with Cali. I know. We saw that climate change model. Uh, you guys in New Orleans might actually be in good for some uh, climate stability. Whereas they said Cali is about to change like 10 degrees. About to become a whole different climate in Southern California. I know. It's pretty strange. It seems like being in the subtropics gives you some sort of protection, right? Like, it, <laughs> like they show you your comparable cities, right? It was like our city changed from like Tampa to St. Petersburg or something. Like it didn't move at all. <laughs> it moved like 100... 100 miles. I'm like, okay, I guess that works out. I don't know how California is going to deal with um, losing its Mediterranean climate. But at least I can say I'm not in Northern Cali, where they got the fires. It seems like it's a real Armageddon up there. Well, Cali also benefits from being such a longitudinal state, right? So up and down. And so as a result, you know, it's going to have a bunch of um, climate change, like in different patterns throughout the state. You're going to see some shift in climate patterns around the best thing i can say about cali so far is that you got good food but i have to say that i thought coming to cali we would lose uh some of the black white tensions of the east coast only to come out here and find that they have their ohms whole ohm set of tensions out here well i think you're they, in, you're in la man i think we learned about those in the 90s from people that were confused in any way shape or form right between <laughs> rodney king and then our boy oj Right? We had a few different ways that uh, that, that little divide was tested. I know. I mean, I've been thinking even about Malcolm, right? And Malcolm said he never really, I mean, he got his angriest about police brutality when dealing with the LAPD. But yeah, I don't know. I think it's been a summer of, of heat. I don't know if you would agree. I don't know if it's, if it's affecting you guys in New Orleans, but I feel like in Virginia, uh, this summer I've been stopped by the cops you know, for the same fake taillight thing. And then a neighbor came out to me when I was in Virginia and was like, hey, uh, what are you doing walking around here? And then in LA, suddenly I was made to get out of a cop car. Oh, wow. I mean, I don't know if this is just light skin privilege, but I honestly haven't been pulled over by a cop car in years. I, I don't, maybe in New Orleans, they told them to stop. I know that we did have a, uh, what do they call it? Non-pursuit uh, consent decree in effect for here for a while here, so maybe they just don't feel like pulling anyone over him. That's possible. Well, I don't I don't think I've been pulled over in, in years for a while, but I don't know, it's been interesting, but I think it could be that I'm in new spaces. And so I think the coronavirus has suddenly made me, you know, go take refuge in different places. That, and the fact that I've, you know, made the big move to the best coast. Maybe I just don't know these places well enough yet. What were you doing? Trying to drive out, drive around to Malibu with the top down or something? Yeah, I was trying to go to the beach, and next thing you know, they were like, dun, dun, dun. and so you never know. Got to make sure you got your license and registration in check. You're good. <laughs> you got to always got to make sure you got to be good. You know what I mean? That's one thing I did learn as a black guy is that you got to always have your driver's license on you. Even when I go to the corner store on foot, I'm like, oh, I got my driver's license in my wallet. Oh, yeah, you can't leave home without it. Man, I'm looking at, uh, I'm, I've been freaking out a little bit this week, though. I'm not going to lie. I'm looking at my portfolio, and man, it took a hit, a, a pretty pretty big hit on Friday. What's going on? What's going on this week? I mean, it's funny because at the beginning of the week, I was looking at my portfolio, and I was like, damn, it's cash money rain out here. I mean, look, we're still up, right? We're still up. 
But like this week, it was like a 10% drop across the board. Even even Bitcoin took a hit, right? Mm. I mean, I was at first I thought it was just about Labor Day. And I still think some of that is what's happening, right? I still think some people are like, people have made a lot of money in the market since March, right? Especially if you've been invested in FANGs, uh, you know, the Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, conglomerate. I don't know if you've been in, what do you call it, NVIDIA. If you've been in Zoom, they were talking about this Chinese billionaire uh, and how he's made $11 billion this year just on Zoom. And so, I mean, if, I mean you, if you caught Zoom early, that was definitely a big money maker, man. They they went up like nine hundred percent or something crazy like that. So, I mean, I guess they, I mean, Zoom is one of those things where you're like, I guess they deserve to go up. I mean, I realized I had Zoom on my preloaded on my computer, and I had never even thought of it before. Wow! Now every meeting is on Zoom. Yeah, I know. Zoom has become the standard somehow, it's, and it's still terrible. They didn't fix it. <laughs> like it's still not even that great software, but it's like it's winning. We've decided that's the one that's going to win. So it's one. It's crazy. How All my teaching work. is going to be on Zoom. All my meetings are on Zoom. Zoom has become like the wonder software. Yeah, it like it leaves them just enough of a backdoor to I guess spy on you and sell your data to where everyone's happy, right? And the sign up friction thing I think is huge. Oh, I think whoever was at Zoom was brilliant because they got it preloaded on all these universities' computers. What? And you don't need an account. I think that's the biggest thing. That, like, I can send you a link and you're good to go. You don't need to download anything. You need to do anything. You're just good. Mm. Oh, yeah. And then they have the corporate side, which I think makes universities really happy. Is that they can be like, oh, you're using the UCLA or you're using the Drexel corporate uh, Zoom. Yeah, but that's literally nothing but like a thin veneer over the same product. There's like no security or anything attached to that is the, the thing I'd, I'd caution, you know. <laughs> it's like it's, it's not a true SaaS product, right? Like you're not actually getting like your own instance of this thing that's separated from the rest of the product. That's not what's happening. Like you can still just as easily get hacked. It's connected to the same infrastructure. But you've got – it's like it's like themed now, you know, and you have like this friend group essentially that you can control. Eh, it's something. But I think you're pointing out a good distinction. I mean, I think it's because a lot of these organizations, a lot of our organizations, especially at higher ed, probably the legal department is much stronger, much more closely connected to the president's office than the tech department. And so I think it fits whatever weird legal things that they've come up with rather than maybe the technical components. Weird legal things. You mean like the strange antitrust suit they seem to be bringing against, uh, quote unquote, Google? Well, Google. Well, that, I think, is the other possible market maker. I mean, so the big rumors I heard was that it was SoftBank, which we found out after taking huge losses and crazy stuff like WeWork, Uber. I think there are big holders in Airbnb. I mean, honestly, there seem to be big holders in everything, which is a little strange. They seem to also be big investors in ByteDance, so TikTok. Mm -hmm. And we can get into the idea, the rumor on the street, that the reason that Microsoft and everyone hasn't put in for uh, TikTok India, the largest TikTok in the world, is that it's going to be either sold to the Ambani's or sold to SoftBank. Perhaps well, it's, it's already been sold. And it's not just that. The Chinese government put in some new controls in place that basically said that none of the algorithms from TikTok or related products would be part of the sale. So basically all that stuff would still be property of the Chinese government and... You wouldn't get access Our to property it. of ByteDance, I guess. No, they were saying the Chinese government. They're like basically putting similar export controls to things we have like with crypto, etc. And saying no, it's ours. So ByteDance can't even decide to sell it to you. It's even that's why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's no, even, no. It's even I stronger. Mean, you know. Uh, I mean, I was I wanted to ask you about that. There's a big argument going on about where the value is. Right? Is the value in the data? 
or is the value actually in the algorithm? But I think we should get to that in a little bit. But um, but no, I think you're right. I mean, I think we've been seeing crazy moves in the market. I mean, there's excess liquidity. I don't know about you, Alton, but I don't think the real economy has bounced back as well as some people seem to think it has. Well, we all we know that there's going to be this huge wave, like this echo wave that's going to come through soon due to the rental economy. Like the rental economy is totally screwed, especially the corporate rental economy. There's a few articles that came out this week just highlighting how bad it is, but it, it looks like at least there's gonna be a, a minimum 50% reduction, they're saying in total like office rentals around the country in major cities. That's huge, man. Like what's gonna happen to all those buildings? So do you think we've really made the transition? That uh, work from home is here? Yeah, work from home. So we're not going back? Work from home's here, especially because like we know for most businesses, it's actually cheaper and it's sli- it is slightly less efficient, right? For most people. Like it's definitely better to be in the same room with someone in the same building. It is. Like you can talk, you can do things, you can actually look at someone's computer, type something for them. It's better, right? But it's only marginally better. And if you put in the cost, I mean, this is a <laughs> part of your block by block theory. You know, this is another micro uh, instance of the same effect, right? Like they're, everyone's, getting spread out and the costs are going to be put on the individual and maybe you'll get a little salary bump on top of it actually and so it's like is is anyone really going to be that angry about that well think about how much time you could be spending commuting so let's say like i do spend an extra hour a day working but i was spending almost two hours a day commuting so maybe in net i've actually gained an hour you definitely gained an hour oh yes i mean yeah i've gained an hour i mean i do think that talking on zoom takes longer, right? Like to coordinate anything when you're not in the same place, there is this coordination problem. You gotta write emails. I mean, you gotta start twitching people, using Discord. Yeah, you have to to install like 40 different communication apps and like use at least three or four of them at the same time most of the time. It's it's, it's, it's a little bit of a weird, I mean, don't get me wrong, but it also kind of makes the whole idea of like why, I guess my question is why do you think Google or Alphabet, I guess, really, is the one that's the target of this antitrust. Why them? Why, what, what about them irks the Justice Department so much? Because I, I think it's safe to say that Google was aware that this was going to happen before Trump got elected, right? So they, they pivoted literally a full year before the election. Around the same time Trump announces, they form Alphabet. And so it's almost like they knew that, this was, that they were under the radar. Like they were, they've been prepared for this. Yeah, I have some friends that have been working with Google and like, even last year, uh, some of my friends that are lawyers were telling me that, you know, they have been prepared. They have fully prepared for the antitrust case. Well, they, they say like 14 of the Justice Department lawyers walked out on bar or something like that during the middle of it. And they were like, this is ridiculous. This is too rushed. We think this is kind of a haphazard case, to be honest. And so that's probably good for Google. I mean, Google like Google, I think Google's going to win the antitrust case. Is well, the, is the I think part. there's some weird things going on, right? Like, <clears throat> like with the TikTok issue, right? It's clear that the U.S. needs a data policy. Um, and then with the Google antitrust case, there, there probably is antitrust. There probably is an antitrust case to be made um, against some of the fangs, right? But it's not clear that the government has articulated uh, a principle, right? Correct. Along which correct. is doing it. Correct. What's the guiding principle? Like, what are we trying to encourage? And I guess, to me, as someone that's in tech, uh, I get confused terms of big picture like the big scope so we're engaging the main component of this war with china is an economic slash tech war right the tech war is what's undercutting all this which is why tiktok is such a big component of it right 
But so what's the deal about attacking our biggest victors in the game at the same time that we're attacking China? Who does this benefit? Like, what's the? What are they? Well, China is also strangely attacking um, Alibaba and Tencent at the same time. So China has been cracking down on Alipay, and there's also an investigation of WeChat and going on inside of China. And so I think you're starting to see this weird. I just keep coming back this year to the idea that I used to not take those James Bond movies seriously. You know, I used to watch them and I used to be like, they're so goofy. And then, you know, the villains were comical. Like, who is Goldfinger? Whatever. But lately I've been like, oh, I missed it. I mean, it's been out here in plain sight. Spectra is real. Like, a a lot of us have, you know, been thinking that there's something going on with the US, China, Russia, great enemies. And you're like, no, player, I think we're fighting Spectra. And all these countries are doing very similar things for Shane. Well, I don't know if they're fighting Spectre. I think that's the problem. I think maybe the Spectre is just playing a, 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 mummer's, a mummer's game for us, right? They're putting on a little <laughs> bit of a show, mm-hmm. and, and we're watching it. Um, we can get into that more later and how I think that's actually... I mean, you started saying it recently, how we think that might be something happening in this election this year, too. Um, but we... Oh, yeah. I mean, there might be a little bit of that. But no... I mean, to go back to your point, I think, I think if there is a fight, right? I mean, the fight seems to be, in part, the role of the state, particularly the national security, inside the tech companies. And so I kind of feel like some of the boys are trying to carve out a much bigger role for themselves um, because I, as the arbiters of the new wealth. Because the funny thing is, I actually think Google, of, of the FANG groups, I think they're closer to Tesla than the other big guys in, to, in the sense that Google's willing to act as a disruptor over and over. Like they've put out their Google Fiber. Now they're doing this like uh, direct subscriber Google uh, 5G they're about to roll out. So they're actually, they're weird. They they don't, in terms of their products, it's they don't really have too many monopolies except for the search engine. I, and it's not really a monopoly either. I mean, it does the majority of search, but to me, it's a little confusing to see where Google like, why they're the guys that are under the radar here. To me, Apple seems like a far worse offender, but don't get me stuck. Oh, I mean, <clears throat> I think Apple is probably a far worse offender. I mean, one could maybe argue that Apple is not as integral in the new world that's coming. And Apple, that, Apple know, frequently breaks old rules. So, like, for example, uh, the EU put out standards saying that all mobile device manufacturers must move to the same plug standard. So Apple couldn't do this plugs thing that they wanted. Mm. And Apple just decided, you know what? We'll just pay the penalty. Like, we'll just pay the financial penalty and we're just not going to abide by this standard. Like, we just, we don't care. And they intentionally do things that we know from the old antitrust lawsuit against Microsoft are illegal. But just the ruling against Microsoft, not them, right? Apple intentionally makes their devices non-interoperable with other people's devices. It's like so key to their whole, the way they sell things, right? Like your vices will connect better if if you buy another Apple product. We know that kind of behavior is illegal. Like we already know that. No, I mean, Apple is clearly a monopolist, but I think there are certain elements of the state, for instance. I mean, I think you're probably, the reason they're attacking Google is actually because it keeps disrupting things. And it seems like in the Trump administration, I don't want to just pick on them, but it seems like there's a, there's certain groups inside of the Trump administration that would like to gain a foothold inside tech and would like to charge rents, right? Or that believe that the state should be the guiding force in new technologies like 5G, should have a new say on things like AI, that there should be this closer cooperation. But then I mean, why don't they just create 
do it the traditional way and just create these, you know, grants and, you know, programs like moonshots for these programs and get it done. Like the government is probably who should be. I mean, I agree with them in that sense. It's just they're not also properly funding it and doing it, taking any action. It seems like they're kicking everyone in the kneecaps being like, you're not working enough. It's like, wait. Well, I don't think they're I don't think they're great producers. Right. I don't think these are guys that are like, let's build something. Right. I mean. When they came into office, we were all kind of like, well, this seems pretty bad, but maybe they're going to build some bridges, you know, maybe they're going to uh, give us an infrastructure upgrade. And we've since seen that they have no intention of doing that, right? I mean, so, so the one way it would make sense, but this is what I don't think they're, I don't think this is what they're trying to do. And if it is, it's a very strange way to go about it. But a good, it would probably be not a bad thing. You said it before if the price of American tech went down a little bit, I think it would make it easier to compete with China. I think that's true. I just don't know why attacking Google, if that accomplishes this end at all. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's hard sometimes to make sense of what exactly they're doing. Like, like why didn't they put forth a data privacy bill if they were worried about TikTok, right? And that way, you know, actually just address the issue. And they could have, even in a data privacy bill, they could have done something about like foreign ownership of data or well, I data think, naturalization. I think that's one of the, or, you know, for me, that was one of the biggest disappointments of, of, of our boy Obama's administration is they basically, the Democrats decided that they agreed with the Bush administration on surveillance. They decided they were going to double down on the Patriot Act. They've decided they were going to expand surveillance actually far more than you've ever seen before and that they were going to be super aggressive against people that blew the whistle on these programs like Edward Snowden, right? And made him enemy of the state number one. Um, and so I think that's why we don't have a data privacy act. It's because both parties have agreed that you don't have no data privacy, essentially. Um, well, I mean, and, and, the chief, have, I guess. and the chief distinction, and I'll agree with you here, and this is a very interesting distinction, is whether or not the data should be in the hands of the individual, the government, or corporations. And America seems to like to have it in the hands of corporations because corporations are not as constrained as the government. And I feel like they don't want the government to have, because that's what China's, China says, your data belongs to the government. Like, shut up. That's, that's whose data it is. Like, you're a fool to think anything otherwise. America actually says, no, no, no. We're not collecting the data, wink, wink. But we have the right, but we have the right to purchase it or just uh, request it from private institutions who also can collect this data and have very few laws and rules for how they can operate with this data. And so it's like, it's a very interesting loophole. I think it's very intentional, honestly. I was reading this hilarious uh, essay and they were like, we're so worried about the Chinese getting our data through all these nefarious means. And then they were showing you, they were like, well, you know, the US has this interesting thing called data marketplaces. And whatever the Chinese want the data, they just buy it. That's what and I'm saying. Like, it's, and it's super cheap. It's not like they're acting like it's like impossible to get this cell phone data. I'm like, bro, you want me to go? You want to go buy some right now? Like, this is not <laughs> like that crazy of a thing. You can go buy it, and it's super cheap, and it's real time. Like, I can get real. Literally, I won't have your name, but I could get real time cell phone data from literally you and me right now by by going on the market. It's not that crazy. I, I mean, that was one of the big breakthroughs that we saw with a much with a power that we thought was much less or is much less technologically sophisticated. Uh, the Saudis. The Saudis have shown that with like two guys, one guy who was a former gym coach, you could just start buying real-time data on marketplaces and carrying out like live assassination teams. And nobody's saying anything about it. They don't even have this like tech industry that we assume is in a place like China. I mean, they were, as far as we could tell, they were like a fifth rank power in the Middle Eastern countries. 
They're just wealthy. And they're just out here rolling around. And so I think what you're saying is right. I think we have real problems in the United States, but they would require like fixing things that I don't think the Republicans aren't, frankly, the Democrats aren't interested in fixing. Yeah, I don't think either side is, especially because of the, the way the Democrats are so reliant on tech funding, right? And so they they weren't going to take this. Maybe that's the only reason Republicans are doing this. Maybe they're just like, Google, you gave the Democrats too much money. We're kicking you in the knee. Like, it has to happen. Like, you're annoying us. You know, that, that's... Honestly, I think that's what's happening. So I think the scary thing that's happening is that the Trump administration identifies real problems, but they always take the kind of corporatist... Uh, which maybe is a polite word for fascist outcome, which is they have favorite companies, right? They want to create, a, they want to create what one of my interviewees when I was doing work in Sudan told me about the Islamic regime there. He called it the unlevel playing field. And he's like, what, what these regimes do, right, is they try to create, they try to weigh in on the market. They're not against monopolies, right? They just think that them as the party should have a decisive say in who wins these market battles. That's, so, old, that's old school, though. It's, it's, it's basically mafioso behavior, right? Like, you, you decide yeah. that there's certain businesses that we're working with, and they should have a slight advantage over other businesses because they're friendly. No, 100%. And I mean, we saw this happen between Amazon and Microsoft. I mean, you can't say that, like, Microsoft is this young boy upstart that just needed a helping hand, right? But Trump came out, and he was like, look, Bezos has been annoying me. I think... Microsoft, despite the fact that the Defense Department review said that the contract for cloud computing should go to Amazon, Microsoft should get the contract. And maybe long term, it doesn't make a big deal. I mean, maybe it's, you know, maybe they're sort of comparable. I mean, I have no idea about this cloud computing contract, but I think it's dangerous. I think we're seeing it more and more, this idea that uh, the president is saying that the executive, maybe himself, have the right to sort of weigh in on these deals, or even the TikTok thing, right? Okay, you said that you know it's illegal for tic- a Chinese company to be running TikTok because it's maybe a data compromise. But then, what did it mean to come out and say, ah, uh, but you know the sale part of the proceeds should come to my Treasury Department, or to start saying, you know, I like uh, the Oracle bid more than I like the Microsoft bid. I mean, there's a little bit of uh, a shadiness going on. Sure, but I mean, I guess the question is how. How, how high and how deep was it going to go? I mean, at, at, to some extent, administrations always weighed in unfair, you know, unfairly, quote unquote, on some of these decisions. It just was a question of how high up these decisions went. And Trump is very unique in the sense that he has he does have his own personal favorites and he's not unwilling to express it, <laughs> I think is the easiest way to put it. Um, and so it does change the tenor of it a little bit. But this is not this is not unprecedented. I mean, it's not unprecedented, just to be fair. To him. I mean, I think it's always there, yeah. but I think what's interesting about Trump and the current administration is there's no pretense of like articulating a rule, and so like they don't have any. There's rules. no pretense at like making up like a you know <laughs> a guideline. The guideline seems to be don't fuck with us. Yeah, it's basically just a stiff arm. I think half the time, like don't mess with us. Make sure our boys have a seat. I mean, you've told us that, and we've seen it in the articles around what was that? Uh, they called it. Gamergate and all that stuff, where all the Republican, the right wingers were saying they were being excluded from Silicon Valley tech companies, right? They were like, you know. Oh, yeah. I think, I mean, I think that's probably what's happening with things like even Google. Because I think a lot of boys feel like they should have a bigger say. Alden, Alden, no, no, no. Let me tell you something to someone who works in tech. There is over representation, (laughs) to be honest, of people who seem to call themselves libertarian in the tech field. There's a lot of these boys. 
And so to say that there's no conservatives in tech is ridiculous. That's all I'll say. I mean, it's like when they start saying there's no conservatives in academia. I'm like, I don't know if you've ever been to any academic departments, but there's always at least a few conservatives, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's ridiculous. And then some of the boys who are supposed to be not conservative, I guess there's those people who are supposed to be, what do you call it, centrists? Mm-hmm. And I feel like centrist is a wide label. I mean, a lot of stuff can be fit into the centrist label. Which I guess gets us to the crazy point that you wanted to bring up. What did you think about the conventions? I mean, they were, you know, it was interesting. Uh, I think it's safe to say the Democrats, uh, they had a better, you know, produced convention. It was, like, more clean and put together. Um, One could almost say sterile to some extent, too, because, like, it was so well produced, but you almost felt like you needed... I almost wanted them to pump in some fake like applause and stuff at some point. So I'm like, I, I think we need, I think we need that 1950s laughter and applause right now because it just feels weird when someone ends a speech and they look around, you know, there's these moments and you get nothing. Um, overall, I thought it was well done. I thought it was the single best speech I've seen Joe Biden give in his life. Um, mm. I'll say that um, he, he did exactly what he needed to do, but then he got zero point bounce. <laughs> like after all that. There's zero point bounce from this thing. So, I mean, I don't know. And, uh, I mean, what do you think about the GOP? I mean, they they had a a slightly different approach to it, no? So the thing that got me about the Democratic Convention was I kept thinking about, like, they had, like, Eva Longoria and Julia Dreyfus. And you're kind of like, is this, like, a local news show? Because, you know, they had this weird segment where you're like, why is this random celebrity, like, moving us from one thing to the other? And I, and I felt like I was, like, overly focused on those in-between sort of produced parts rather than the messages that were coming through. But it was nice. Like, I, I enjoyed it. The musical segments were good. Um, my dad had an interesting critique. He was like, there is something sort of inaccessible about Zoom. And I was wondering, I mean, you know, the idea that the convention is all staged... In this sort of like teleprompty way, and it, you know, and it made me think about. I was moving then, and so it made me think about all the people who actually don't get to stay at home. And so, you know, like when you're moving, you have all these movers. I saw the cleaners coming in and out of the apartment building. You know, there's all these workers, right, who don't have the luxury of staying at home at all. And I've been thinking a lot about, um, and maybe it's something we should come to later. The main tension in the Democratic Party: how do you create a party? Do the high-paid professionals and, like, hourly workers actually have the same interests? No. And, like, how do you reconcile those things? I think some of the frustrations we have with the Democratic Party come down to this I think this, this fundamental uh, conflict. Well, so, first of all, they don't belong to the same party. That's something that's pretty clear at this point, right? But the Democrats and the Republicans on most economic issues actually aren't that different, right? Like, the, the chief split now is to some extent whether or not you believe in this globalist vision that still existed the neoliberal globalism or if you believe in some form of nationalism and you think that that is the next most rational step that's like the chief division between the two parties at this point i think that's safe to say no maybe i don't know i mean the republican party was weird too because the republican party i think they knew that their attack was that Trump is a horrible racist human being. And they did the classic thing where they're like, okay, guys, we don't need, we're not trying to appeal. Uh, we're trying to satisfy at least a, some part of our own core base that Trump isn't that racist. And so they did the classic testimonial thing. They had like, I had never seen so many black dudes get up there at the 
GOP and basically say the classic line. Trump's, you know, hey, look, Trump's doing better this time with blocks than he did last time. Yeah, and he invested a lot of energy. And I think that was a big theme of the GOP convention, right? What you had Tim Scott, you had that guy well, of, who was the AG of, of the from prime Kentucky. time of the prime time convention because that's something else you and I discussed. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, there were definitely several conventions, but you know, one of the notable speeches for me was the AG from uh, Kentucky, who is about to have a big week next week after the Kentucky Derby because he's going to announce that he's not going to indict any of the officers involved in the shooting death of Breonna Taylor. Oh, happy! He got up happy the Derby convention. Day. Happy Derby Day. Yeah, he got up at the convention and he was just like, you know, I'm just so happy to be here. Where else besides this country could the grandson of an enslaved person be the AG? And then you heard it from Tim Scott. You heard that theme over and over and over again at the convention. Well, that's the question you even asked me earlier in this pod when I uh, I made some quip about you having kids with a white girl. And you said, well, so is is the change generational? And I think that's the thing that's sold from the conservative, center conservative side, and frankly, a thing that a lot of black people do believe in, is the concept that change must be generational. I was actually listening the other day to some lectures by your boy, uh, Roberto Unger, and mm. uh, he, was, he was basically saying that. He was like, you know, the thing is, you know, a lot of these ideas I'm presenting, you know, they exist in the large arc of historical time, but the problem is, you know, we live in biographical time. And so we have to make these concessions within our biographical time of what we can do and try to not get too constrained by our circumstances. And I think a large part of what conservative forces try to do is constrain you as much as possible by your circumstances, right? (laughs) (laughs) I think that's their whole game, is to constrain your circumstances. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because you heard so much like the appeal to humanize what the Republicans are doing was all about these sort of biographical stories of uplift, right? Like, you know, look where I am now and look where I've come from. And then there were the immigrants, right? And then I feel like the other big uh, theme at the Republican Party was a large number of immigrants, mostly from Latin America, but I think a few might have been from Eastern Europe, who came up and said, I survived totalitarianism, bro. And so the other big takeaway I got was like, look, first, I think there was a man who was coming out of uh, Cuba, but there were some who came from Venezuela as well, or Colombia, and they, were, they basically said something along the lines of, look, first they came and they said there would be free college, there would be free, uh, free health care. Next thing you know, we had socialism. Next thing you know, we had totalitarianism. We must be vigilant. I came to America because, as Ronald Reagan said, this is the last stand. If freedom can't survive here, freedom can't survive so, anywhere. So I learned about this, though. Those people, the Cubans are interesting. So when I was in college, I had uh, some close friends. Uh, the frat I lived in, they were a lot of Cubans. And they would tell me the same thing. Like, we can't do socialism. We can't do leftward stuff. You know, what happened in Cuba was awful. But then you come to find out, what did these people's grandfather do? He owned a sugar plantation. <laughs> so it's like, wait a second, who are these people that are complaining so much about what happened to them and blah, blah, blah? They were the damn fascists. They were the slave drivers. So, I mean, there's always going to be some winners and losers, right? Yeah, yeah I mean, like our friend Bacardi. Bacardi is a massive anti-Castro uh, person. I mean, it's funny, because when you first get your Bacardi when you're a kid, right, you don't think about where Bacardi comes from, right? You're just like, Bacardi, sounds cool. And then you find out, right, that, oh, the Bacardis were some of the largest landlords in, in Cuba. 
And no wonder they're anti-Castro. And where are they now? They're in the Bahamas where they're still running slave plantations there and in Florida. Exactly. So, I mean, when they talk about totalitarianism, it's like as opposed to what? Slavery and fascism? So it's like we have, you know... The free market. The free market, Alton. The free market. Free. Yeah, free. (laughs) Libre gratis. The the sanctity of private property. Yeah, I know, right? Property. Start hearing that word too much and I always get the shivers, you know? But that's where I think we are, right? I mean, I think at the Republican side... And I think this is a problem that maybe Western democracies have been having over and over again, is that a lot of them are, I mean, we saw this with the way that even the Democrats treated Bernie, right? The Democrats are definitely afraid mm, of their left, right? The Democrats are definitely afraid of the socialist wing of their party. But the Republicans, at least not in prime time, or actually sometimes in prime time, are like, yo, I just want to tell you a story about totalitarianism. I'm not worried at all about putting some um, fascists up here on the stage. It's all Gucci. They're not afraid of their right. Well, so this is something we've discussed before. One of the things that makes their party more interesting in some, like, they have non-negotiables that much more strongly bind their party. So they're not as afraid of losing people that are in the party because they know that they're generally one, two, or three issues that party members just won't bend on, right? Whereas the Democrats have a far larger tent, and unfortunately for them, the left is far more invested in the concept of redistribution than the center part of the party, who seems to be highly invested in some sort of oligarchic caste system, frankly, if you want to hear my opinion. And and they're very highly, highly invested in this concept of meritocracy, quote-unquote, and the you know, the earning the right to to govern because of some sort of perceived meritocracy. And that's why you get wealth, et cetera, et cetera. It's because your achievements and because of your merit. But they don't, at this point, I don't find that the Democrats actually try to increase the average person's ability to achieve these goals. So I think the Democrats have a tension, right? And I think the Democratic tension, I think almost all Democrats are invested in some form of redistribution, right? I think almost all Democrats would believe that there's a government role in redistribution. I think the question then becomes... I don't agree with that. Well, I think it's one of the places where we disagree, but I think that they... I've, I've, I know people they, who are Democrats who are like donors, whose parents are donors. They're, I'm talking about wealthy Democrats, I said, too, but that who are donors and they do not believe in... Like, they tell me, like, they... That there are definitely people in our party that lobby for lowering the estate tax and for these things. Don't act like these are purely Republican interests. And that's what frustrates me, because Democrats don't see themselves properly in the mirror. Like, this is a part of our party. Like, don't pretend like it's not. Well, I think almost most Democrats, I believe, believe, I mean, even neoliberals, right? They would say, right, that the, the impoverished shouldn't fall below a certain realm, right? So I feel like Democrats believe in at least some level of social programming. And then, but I feel like the divide between Democrats is a classic divide, I guess, between the self-perception of prof- professionals and the self-perception of those who consider themselves to be working class, right? And those are two different, I think to be those two different things, you have two different perceptions of self, right? Professionals particularly, I think, see themselves as meritorious, what do you call it? As having passed some tests, right? You, you pass these tests that then gain, grain you entry 
into these places. So like they're heavily invested in like schools and exams and this idea of competition. Well, and the, and the idea of that they deserve what they have because they've made these sacrifices and passed these. Like that's yeah. that, that's the gateway to and it's it's a it's a very uh, infectious thought process, right? Because you hear a lot of people say it on the left, especially black people, when they will say, "Well, I can't believe this happened to this person." You know, look at all he accomplished in this life, and this still happened to him. It's like, what the hell does that have to do with anything? He's like, he's he's a person, and somehow they, but it's embedded the idea of exceptionalism because of accomplishment. It is. I mean, exceptionalism because of accomplishment is one of the core myths of the American system, right? I mean. A lot of us watch ESPN, right? I mean, you think that athletes, right? I mean, we don't think that, like, LeBron James is going to get stopped by the cops, right? I mean, we think that he deserves certain privileges now because he's LeBron James. But, and that's an athlete, athletes, right? But then it goes over into the same idea, right? Like, I've passed these tests. I mean, I think it's especially infectious if you're African-American because you've been told... What's the classic phrase that we were told? You have to work twice as hard if you're black. So you've been told actually that you're twice as as deserving if you're an African-American and you make it to be like senior partner at like McKinsey, right? Like you overcame even additional obstacle. Sure. And therefore you deserve this great lifestyle, right? Like you deserve the two million you might make a year. You deserve the penthouse apartment. Mm -hmm. And you do, I mean, you also work all the time. So the other downside of this weird self-perception of the professional is that you work yourself almost to death, right? You see these people, they're like, I work like 80 hours a week. I don't know what I'm doing. Ah." And, you know, and it's like, it's a kind of masochism, right? Because you have to perform these acts in order to make yourself feel that you're deserving, in order to tell yourself this story because... Well, it's productivity is self-validation, right? Mm. And it, it's it, that's very important, I think, for most people, professional or not, to be honest. I think people that are non-professional, this, I guess that's the one thing I disagree with you on. I don't think it's necessarily about blue-collar versus professional. I don't think it's quite that clear. Um, I think it more has to do with... So there are blue-collar workers that make just as much, you have to remember, mm. as professionals. I, I think it... Some of them, a lot of them make more, yeah. depending on what you do. Yeah. And I think they also, you know derive pleasure and uh, value, right? A sense of value out of accomplishment and work. So it's not quite that either, right? It's just, I don't think, they might acknowledge more that anyone can do this shit than professionals do. I think that might be part of it. You know, I think professionals actually, they they use the result to confirm the question, right? I, I think that's more of the problem. Well, I mean, I grew up in, I mean, I've spent a long time now in academia and I feel like academics are some of the most guilty of this. I right. I mean, I think academics really believe, right, that like when you meet uh, a Harvard historian, for instance, right, like he probably he or she probably does believe that there is. I mean, you hear it all the time in like exams or in contest prizes that, you know, we can objectively here see the best one and we're going to pick the best one. And therefore, there's this idea that there's constant competition. Right. And it's the result of this constant competition that the best are rising to the top. And it's unclear if that's like, I mean, I actually don't think that's true. I mean, I think if anybody's seen like the current state of academia, I mean, you can go to any grad school and you can be like, well, probably could just pick five of these dudes and everything would be fine. It would be Gucci. No difference is made. I mean, you called, you called it in tech overfit. I feel like we engage in tons of overfit. 
Oh, of course, because you got this panel, and each person doesn't like something, and each person wants something, and they want to make sure you get along, and you know, you want to sit next to them at the meeting or whatever. So you start nitpicking, you know, and to some extent you have to, because maybe the differences between a lot of these candidates aren't that great, like you're saying. Yeah, the differences aren't that great, and the job itself, what has to be done, I think, requires less specialization than is actually being produced, right? So we produce these hyper-specialized people to do actually most of their social work, socially beneficial work is, I guess, uh, more generalized. But, I mean, core to, I think, our being is this idea of it being a contest, right? So, like, the whole of academia is set up as a lifelong contest. You know, it's all ranked, right? And there's a constant series of positions, and you're constantly battling all of your peers, supposedly, uh, to advance, right? And then we can supposedly see who's ahead of who. I used to get this from my friends that were, had become weird investment bankers. So, like, in college, they would just hire, you know, I mean, a I guess full round of exams. You could also see it as cooperative. It just, I think that's a matter of perspective. But, yeah. Like in science, yeah, it's, you, that's a classic argument in science. Like, what's going on? Are we competing or cooperating or both? Like, what's the, you know, there's that whole thing. Because well, I think we're both competing and cooperating, right? Like, we're clearly self-governing. But part of, part of the way we keep this racket going on or part of the way we cooperate or justify why others shouldn't be involved in governing us is to say that we're exercising this massive competition. And so by claiming to have created a market competition inside, we also then can go to the administrators or, you know, the funders and say, look, you can't tell us anything. We're, we're ruthless to ourselves. And it also kind of, to some extent, uh, the centralist Socratic method, just the concept of like testing the hypothesis, right? So someone comes up with an idea and it's almost like you have an onus now if you're in the same field to test it, right? You have to challenge it. Like that's how you figure out whether or not the concept is fit. Right? Like, that's how we determine so we've, fitness. We've had a massive breakdown in my, in my little subfield of African history. Uh, a very prestigious historian at GW, uh, we found out that she's been claiming to be an Afro-Latino woman named Jessa, Jess LaBombarella. Uh, or perhaps a, a, earlier she was claiming to be uh, half German and half North African. And now we found out that she's actually a Jewish woman from Kansas who came from a suburban family. Oh, I saw who this. Just I, made didn't, up I didn't a total read about story this. About about Jessica Krug or whatever? <laughs> yeah, Jessica Krug. And now this is called into question exactly what you're saying. She does all this award-winning, prize-winning scholarship on, um, on maroon societies or societies of people who are Africans who escaped slavery and created their own self-governing societies in Angola and in the New World. And all these really famous historians have checked her citations, you know, written letters for her, invited her to prize competitions. And now it turns out that she uh, at least forged her background. Alden, and the questions Alden. are I'm just, whether or not. I'm just, I just Googled it and I'm reading about this. This is killing me. I have, to, I have to give you some quotes from her. So she says, quote, I am not a culture vulture. I am a culture leech. <laughs> so that's, that's, one, that's one quote from her. Okay. And then her old bio used to say this, okay? First line of her bio. Jess Krug is an unrepentant and unreformed child of the hood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. But you're like, you're like, how did no one in academia notice this? You know what you were saying, like this testing? I feel like this is a massive uh, uh, shockwave to the self-testing that we were supposed to be doing. <laughs> no one said anything about I'm an unrepentant child of the hood. 
But see, this is what I'm saying. This is the kind of stuff that, like, how did no one, this is how you know black, no black people were involved in this hiring process. Like, no one looked at her and was like, this bitch ain't black. Like, that never happened at any point in time. What? Well, the hilarious thing is that on her book, on the back of her book, there are several big black professors, like some Harvard professors and other things like that. And you're like, nobody said anything about it. This is amazing. I think everybody was scared, honestly. Like, you know, because like, I feel like a lot of us have a do no harm thing. You know, you're like, somebody walks into your office and you're like, huh, that was a little bit strange. You're like, I could press on this, but maybe it'll blow up on me. Well, also, there's the whole weird thing, frankly. It's a little bit of American colorism, racism, where you, like, you don't tell someone they're not a certain race. Like, unless there's someone is black and saying they're white, then you can be like, no, you're not white. But you can't tell someone that's, like, that looks like her that they're not black, because it's like, maybe she is. I don't fuck, I don't know. Like, maybe her grandpa is black or something. I don't know. Like, it's, it's, it's interesting that that's considered un- un- unacceptable. But if she, if she would, like, looked like you and claim she was white they'd be like no you're not like what are you talking about uh, <laughs> like, like, I mean that is the hilarious thing about the American system right is that is that our rule about the one drop rule I guess creates these possibility right because you're right no one was going to be like oh your grandmother is not black because how do we know yeah, no one knows maybe you know and you've decided to affect I guess I have first cousins I have first cousins that are black that are like look much whiter than her that are blonde and blue eyed so there's that so and both of their parents are quote unquote black so I mean she if they you know just saying but she also had this fake Bronx accent like there's this video of her calling into the New York City Council and she's like attacking gentrifiers and <laughs> she's putting in, she's putting in the work at least she's like trying to yeah. at least she's trying to use her like her mask for good purposes she's like trying to be like a black super light-skinned black superhero you know there was this there's a swedish woman who lived in a building with her in east harlem who said that every time she used to uh just would see her she would start shadow boxing her and was throwing away her blue eye apron things into the trash can oh my yeah i mean there's a lot it's a lot it's a lot going on out there (laughs) oh my but going back to what you said earlier though um about the Bacardis and people like that. And the fact that they feel so at home inside the Republican Party. Uh, you get this attack that's been made against um, against Kamala Harris, right? And the idea that the Republicans would come out and attack her dad uh, for being a descendant of a, of a slave owner or a plantation owner. That was so weird. It's like, oh, was this, what's that idiot's name? The Indian guy? He was, he was the one putting that stuff out there. I don't even want to say his name. He's so stupid. And he, <laughs> he was like... Oh, yeah. And she's claiming to be the descendant of slaves. She's actually the descendant of a slave owner. It's like, do you even hear what you're saying? Do you know what that means? You fucking moron. <laughs> God, that guy's so stupid. Like, is that just tongue in cheek? Oh, yeah. Do they know He's it? the same one who came out and said the thing about, uh, oh, what do you call it? Obama being the child of Mau Mau. I mean, you know, these people are just anti-colonial racism. Hatred. And that's why he hates white people. That's why he hates Western civilization. Because he's the son of colonialism. And colonialism taught him to hate Western civilization. Yeah. And you're like, there's some real craziness out there. But no, I mean, it just epitomizes um, an unwillingness. I guess that's the thing that the Republicans have going for them. And they've just decided to double down on it. By banning American, U.S. Agent, government agencies from teaching un-American things. Um, is they have this willingness to... To ignore history or to play both sides of the historical argument, right? Like, you actually have people like Tom Cotton in your party who are, you know, I guess, 
sort of saying that slavery was okay, kind of necessary. We shouldn't be ashamed of it. Well, the funny thing about and Tom then, Cotton saying that is I agree with him. I think that we should be ashamed of it, but it was probably necessary. I guess, I mean, I guess you could say as a Republican that um, slavery was foundational to capitalism. It was. Right? Slavery created the conditions in which you could create labor that could be sold and bought and sold in the market and directed in that way. I mean, you saw that, I you guess saw that, that study that you sent me recently, the guy did, where that said that the slave markets actually more closely model idealized, right, capitalists like they, that you see in a textbook than free markets, right? Like slavery is actually the closest thing to the quote-unquote alleged free markets as proposed in capitalism. So there's that. Like clearly it's required because it was a, a better model. I think that's one of the tensions. I mean, I think that's actually one of the core tensions at work, right? And like... Sometimes we wonder why people like Lindsey Graham say things like, we need to cut the unemployment insurance. It's because capitalism cannot work if everybody has money. See, I, How do you force so people to think, do things that they don't want to do? So the interesting thing about that is I don't think it's fully true. Um, and I think we're going to see, and that's, that's part of what's happening right now, the effects of what's happening right now that people aren't understanding. Uh, and that's what Andrew Yang was trying to warn us about. So as jobs get more and more mechanized, that's not true, Alden. Like that becomes less true because then you have machines that can do a lot of the unwanted risky labor. And that's becoming more and more and more and more true. The question is, what do you do with the larger percentage of people that might be under or unemployable? And how do you distribute these profits? I think that's the more important question because I don't think, oh, yeah. I, I mean, think capitalism actually can function with these all these things in place. So I think, and I think ro ro robots in particular or making it more possible? Well, I think that becomes a question about what we think capitalism is. I mean, if capitalism is the ability to command people uh, using cash, right? Command, to distribute their labor. Command labor forces. Not yeah. necessarily people. Command. Traditionally, it was people. But as I'm saying, as time goes to infinity now, we know that maybe a lot of these laborers are not people, right? The number of people mm. required goes down. And so maybe some of these people since they're going to be more high-level workers, their salaries are actually go up on average in these fields. But then what about all the other people? They get no jobs. They have to find something else to do. Well, that's where you see the transition, I think, into socialism, right? That's where you see this transition into some it other system of socioeconomic yeah. uh, organization. I'm saying not necessarily. I prefer socialism, but I don't know if that's necessarily... It could be feudalism, right? Or it could be some other patronage system, right? Where people survive as retinues to one or two productive uh, people around them, right? I mean, but we see that already. I was watching the new uh, Drake, uh, DJ Khaled video in which Justin Bieber uh, mimes all of Drake's lyrics. Pop star. I, and you, I haven't, and you seen, see I haven't this seen this idea. Yeah, it's hilarious. But you see this whole, you see what the life already is, right? I mean, if you're a celebrity or you're one of these people, you just have these large retinues of people who aren't, I guess, producing tangible objects necessarily but who receive a kind of redistribution from you right there are all these people that you just have around as your retinue sure i mean some of them maybe are dancers who appear in your video or some of them are just people that you think are attractive that you would like to have around the house some of them are people that you have like the same way you have lamps i mean you get this idea <laughs> of Jesus. like uh yeah i mean we see a lot of uh sex play lamps in ancient rome and people were like, oh, you know, the Romans were so uh, adventurous. And I was reading this article the other day, a while back, and they were like, you know, the reason that Romans were so open about sex play 
is because they were often having sex with enslaved people. And for them, that was the same as like doing things with objects. It would be like, you know, talking about uh, doing some pleasuring yourself with a chair. And so there's also the danger that that's the other way we go, right? Is that as you have more and more surplus people, you push them into, I guess, I mean, the polite way of talking about it is what we call the care economy, mm-hmm. that people derive uh, value or pleasure from the presence of other people. Well, we've, we've, already, but that, we've already seen that start happening since the 90s in a large effect, right? Like, that's, this is why I lost faith in any form of what they call global neoliberalism, right? Because the, the promise was supposed to be that we'd export these expensive jobs, I mean, these expensive in terms of risk jobs, risk, risk expensive <clears throat> jobs, and that we'd be able to get higher paying service or managerial level jobs in America. But we found out that that wasn't true, and we ended up with a bunch of part-time, low-paying service jobs in America that replaced them, and the, the good wage-paying jobs that were in manufacturing are gone. And maybe now they'll start coming back, but it, it, it wasn't a fair trade. Oh, probably not. I mean, I think you have to think, right, if what you're saying is true and the robots are coming. They are. They're here. They're here. Then the good-paying manufacturing jobs for everyone are not coming back. And I think one of the failures of the American left is that they still, particularly the democratic socialist left, right, still buys into this idea of national competition. There can be no revolution without a global revolution. If you allow large reserves of labor to exist outside of the country, at conditions that you yourself don't work at, then why would anybody keep their jobs with you? Oh, because right? of because of federal laws and the ability. Yeah, because of federal laws and maybe the ability, but that's all temporary solution, right? I mean, the profit arbitration is too large out there. Well, sure, right? but if you but don't we're, reform we're once, capitalism at home, we're once, you can't we're once again stop dis- that di- arbitration. Discussing the uh, the difference between historical time and biographical time, right? So you can do a kind of Polanyan, Karl Polanyan uh, slowdown, right? And I think uh, some part of the the Republican Party is engaging in what we might call a kind of Luddite movement, right? Trying to break the machine. Slow time. I don't think they're really Luddites. uh, I don't think they're anti-technology. I don't think that's the problem. They're not anti-technology, but they're trying to slow the machine, right? They're trying to give themselves a little more time. That's actually how it was explained to me by a friend that works for Trump. He was like, look, I believe in Tesla. I'm putting all my money in battery cars, but at the same time, I'm slashing regulations to try to give uh, the combustion engine a little more time because we're heavily invested in it, right? Like we're invested in fracking, but we know that the new alternative energy is coming or we have to give coal a little bit of time because we can't transition fast enough. Sure. And so I think you see a large part of that or like what the the Trump administration just did with uh, truck driving. They just reduced the age for minimum age for truck drivers to 18 or they're trying to do this. Why? Why would you push more people to be truck drivers if you think the robot trucks are like, what, max a decade away? Because you're trying to give people more time, right? You're, you're fighting a rear guard action. You don't think there's like good jobs in trucking for the sustainable future. Mm, you're just trying to give people a little bit more time. Yeah, but I mean, that's biographical time. Maybe, maybe you think that's enough time for you and your people to get what you need, and then you pass the buck on after that. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and we see, I mean, and we were seeing until coronavirus, a definite bias of older people to the Republican Party, right? So imagine you're like 65, you're heavily, you're still invested in like Chevron. You don't want to try to figure out these newfangled new energy sources, right? You're like, I just want to die in peace in a golf club. Well, as you told me uh, the other day, uh, we don't learn new paradigms. 
<laughs> I mean, we don't. We don't want to learn new tricks. <laughs> we don't want to learn new tricks. Isn't that the lesson you were trying to well, teach me? You're like, hey, bro. What I was trying to, what I meant was, um, we don't let uh, new information, new facts, disturb our paradigm. Sure, I understand. Uh, but you know, yeah, I mean, we can't, we can't get out here doing too much, too much Gucci newness. You know, what I mean? <laughs> there's so many, so many degrees of freedom. I guess that each person has uh, with, with regards to their philosophy or their approach. That's, that's a way to look at it. Or I think this is where Hillary really lost the election last time. When she told, um, you know, imagine you tell a coal miner, hey, why don't you just become a coder? Yeah, you just tell a coal miner we should become a coder, right? And like, sure, in theory, in like what you're saying, historical time, maybe that's possible. But in biographical time, is that like a reasonable thing that's going to happen, right? Like... If you've invested your life in one thing, can, how quickly can you adjust completely to a new thing? Yeah, most people that try to be coders can't even be coders. Now we're going to make coal miners coders? This is ridiculous. And, 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 <laughs> and it's insulting. Like, right? It's And it's the whole con. Like, I, I get that it's aspirational and it's future looking, but it's at the end of the day, it's just absurd. It's absolutely absurd. I mean, maybe your children can become coders if coding is what we really want them to do, but. Well, and to be but, fair. That's what we've seen in West Virginia. I don't know if you've seen the initiatives they've done over there with tech and education. They've actually invested a lot of money in those things in the state. And their mm. their millennial generation, or what is, what's the word I'm looking for? What's the past millennials? What's the ones that are younger than us? Gen Z? Gen Z. Yeah, they're highly technically capable in West Virginia, actually. So uh -huh. they made a big investment in it. Um, so then what Hillary was saying was actually right. It's just she was speaking in historical time instead of biographical time. She should have just said your kids. I don't know why. I guess that's the other thing that we don't like to talk about. But I'll say it. I'm going to say it one sentence. And then maybe we'll come back and discuss this. But why are the boomers so bad? Like, why does every policy... Like, they're the worst. Why do they think everything has to benefit them personally? Like, well, because the boomers think Instead of just saying, forever. like, this is for their kids. Like, you can do this. This will help your kids. Like, that's basically why I was such a big fan of Bernie over Biden. Biden's basically like, no, we need to give boomers things. And if they help the boomer, if it helps the millennials, we just should ignore it. Like the millennials aren't that important. Whereas Bernie's like, clearly the next generation, we need to give them the things they want. But the centrists like, no, 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 no. We still got to play boomers last dance, right? This is last dance for Mary Jane. And so, <laughs> well, I think the problem with the boomers is that they believe they're immortals. All right, let's talk about this when we come back. <laughs> All right. Talk to you.